Turn with me, if you would, this morning to Luke chapter 19. If I can dry my eyes so I can read, we'll be good to go. So Luke chapter 19. You may or may not remember, but one of our values here at Fellowship Bible Church is a long obedience in the same direction. It's one of our values because we believe, as you read the scriptures from front to, to end, from beginning to end, it is one of God's values. A long obedience in the same direction is the biblical definition of faithfulness. And faithfulness comes right out of the core of who God is, out of his core of this character trait of his, of faithfulness, flows the implications to you and I as his people. It means that he is long-suffering, he is patient, he is present, he is kind, he is always good, he never lies, and he never sins. Exodus 34, 6 says that God abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. Numbers 23, 19, God is not man that he should lie. Deuteronomy 31 says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Psalm 33 for the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. Lamentations 3, one of my favorites. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Isn't that great when you sin the night before? They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. 1 Thessalonians 5. He who calls you is faithful. Revelations 19 says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called faithful and true. And the kicker, 2 Timothy 2. If we are faithless, which we are, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It is just who he is. And it goes along with another of his character traits, which is he's immutable, meaning he's unchanging. And God being faithful also means that for those of us who walk with him faithfully over a lifetime, a long obedience in the same direction, there will be rewards for us. And for those who are unfaithful, who know him but walk unfaithfully with him over a lifetime, there will be regret and loss. And for those who hate him, we'll see this morning there will be retribution. There will be punishment. There will be a reckoning. And every person, here's, here's, here's the part we need to grasp. Every person on the face of the earth falls in one of these three categories. Faithful, unfaithful, or an enemy of God. God calls balls and strikes Perfectly, someone said. And here's the deal. This can be of great comfort. This can bring great anxiety. Or it can bring destruction. Those are the implications. As humans, though we are we're naturally bent to do just the opposite. To be unfaithful. Proverbs 20, 
ask a question. A faithful man or woman, who can find? It is difficult to find a faithful man or woman, a man or woman who for a lifetime walks in a long obedience in the same direction, always changing, always repenting, always growing, always moving toward the cross. Apostle Paul exhorts us to live a life just like that. He says in Hebrews, Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus. Our text just got summarized for us this morning. That's it at the heart of it in Luke 19, 11 through 27. So let's walk through this passage, seeing the big picture and then digging into the details this morning. Let me first give you the setting as it says in your outline. Jesus, as we saw last week from Monty's sermon, is in a home, the home of the Lee, the Lee, we, I said, we little man, not Lee little man, we little man Zacchaeus. He's in the town of Jericho. There's been a banquet there. Jesus is 17 miles from Jerusalem, his final destination. And Zacchaeus had just declared that he had repented of his sin. And to prove that, he said he's going to, uh, give half of his wealth to the poor and repay those that he had harmed four times what he had taken from them illegally. Jesus told Zacchaeus in this response, the day salvation has come to your house. And then in the next verse, Luke 19.10, Jesus says, that's why I came. What happened to Zacchaeus is exactly why I left heaven, wrapped myself in flesh, and came to the earth to seek and to save that which was lost, and then began to transform, as we sang this morning, a man and woman from the inside out. Jesus had tried his best in this, you know, we're in this journey now, right? The, uh, the road less traveled. For 10 chapters in three years, Jesus has been trying his best for his disciples to get why he came. He stated it as bluntly as he could in Luke 19.10, I came to do this, what you saw in Zacchaeus, and they didn't get it. Who's that sound like? Us. Slow to get it. But Jesus keeps on going. We know in Luke he's talked about the lost corn, the lost sheep, the lost sons, but they still did not get it. They had different expectations about the rule and the reign of King Jesus. And that's exactly why this parable, that he told this parable in Luke 19. Read with me in verse 11. It says, as they heard these things, he proceeded, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. That's exactly the purpose of why Jesus told it, because they weren't getting it, and he wanted them to get it. Jesus needs us, his people, to get that the kingdom of God is not national, is not a national or political movement or mission. See, there was anticipation building, if you were, with the disciples, with the Christ followers here, because they were near in Jerusalem, and they thought when they crest the hill, Right after the Mount of Olives, they would look down on Jerusalem. That's a picture. It's down in the valley. And there would be the city of God and the kingdom of God would be 
there as well. That Jesus would raise an army. He would revolt against Rome. He would, he would lead the Jewish people out of their bondage to Rome, conquer the world, and usher Israel, if you would, into a new golden age of power and prosperity. Now, Jesus will do this eventually on his second return, but he will not do this immediately. That's what he's telling them. He had come first as Savior, and as Savior, there had to be some salvation work done. There had to be a suffering. There had to be death. There had to be a resurrection. And then the second time he comes, he will come as King. And when he does this, he will fix everything. His mission is to seek and to save that which is lost, but when he returns, he will fix everything, including the environment, okay? It's all going to be fixed, including viruses. As Charles Wendell says, Jesus needs the disciples to understand that Jerusalem is about to be the place of passion or death, not political power. Isn't it funny how we always have this bent, and we see it even today, this bent toward seeing God in political terms and political power? They were doing the same thing. In addition, Jesus needs to get the disciples, needs the disciples to get this also. And that is that while he is away, there is work to be done, and he is entrusting to them the message of the gospel to seek and save that which was lost. And then he's going to return and not only uh, expect that, but he's going to evaluate and hold them accountable in how they did his mission. So that's our parable this morning. So all, in all stories, in all parables, there are characters. And this morning, there are three primary characters uh, in our story. Uh, it's a reminder when Jesus tells parables that he, what he does, he captures the heart of people through the realm of the familiar in order to teach an unfamiliar truth. That's what a parable does. To, to convey an unfamiliar spiritual truth through something familiar and uh, the vast, so the vast majority of people could understand that. The folks of Judea would understand this parable this morning because there was a history. Let me read verses 12 through 14 for us. Verse 12 through 14. And he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return, calling ten of his servants. He gave them ten minyas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So as Jesus begins to tell this parable, we need to understand there's a history here. It's a fascinating story that, yes, Jesus made up to make a spiritual truth point, but there's a reason he used this. And that was, uh, we know that Rome ruled over Israel at this time. And the greater king was Caesar. But as Rome continually expanded, here's what Rome would do. They would pick individuals to rule, to be a, a smaller king, if you would, to rule over that area under the ultimate authority of Caesar. And according to the Jewish historian Josephus in 40 B.C., 
that took place. Uh, Herod the Great went to Rome. He negotiated this coronation of his kingship under the Roman rule of Caesar, and he was given rule to rule uh, Judea, Galilee, and Samaria until his death in 4 B.C. So that took place. But then, once he died, it was in his will that his three sons would then rule. And one of them would rule Galilee, one of them Judea, and one of them Samaria. Now, we come along, there's a guy named Archelaus. We'll call him Archie for short. We'll pretend like he's from the south. He ruled Judea which included both Jerusalem and Jericho. And the folks in this story were very familiar with him because when he became the little king under the ultimate or greater king of Caesar, he wanted to show the people of Judea that he was large and in charge. He did a couple things. He built a big palace to show how bad he was. But he also killed 3,000 Jews so they'd fear him, so they would do what he said. And they hated him for it. And right before he went to receive his official blessing from Caesar to get his coronation as king, if you would, the people of Jerusalem, of Judea, uh, they went to Caesar and they appealed. They went as the delegation and they appealed to Caesar. We don't like this man. We hate this man. We don't want him to be king. In light of that, Caesar said, I'm still going to give you the power to rule, but I'm not going to give you the name king unless you earn it with your people. That's the history. They are familiar with Archelaus. They are familiar with this story. So Jesus, incredible and fascinating that he would use something very familiar to them to teach an unfamiliar spiritual truth. So when we see these kind of stories, we're like, where does he get that from? Isn't that amazing? The people know where this comes from. So these three characters in this fascinating parable are one, the nobleman. This nobleman, we need to understand, represents Jesus. He was a nobleman as one of noble birth. And there's no one who had more of a noble birth than Jesus because God was his father. This nobleman went to a distant country that would represent Jesus' ascension after his resurrection to receive a kingdom in order to come back and rule all his subjects. And when he goes away, he will receive a kingdom for himself and in doing so is seated at the right hand of the father or seated at the right hand of God the father the greater king in our story. And his coronation is one of king of kings, crowned to rule by the father himself. The ultimate king has given Jesus the name above all names. And when he returns, both servants and citizens will be held accountable. So that's our nobleman here. The citizens, these are folks, obviously in our text, that hated Archie or Archelaus and are also represented in the parable that hate Jesus. These are primarily the Jewish leaders who said crucify him, the, the mass uh, population of the Jews who did not want Jesus to be their king. And then the third character in our story are the servants. These are folks who are in relationship with Jesus. They work on his behalf. 
They labor according to their master's wishes. Who are to, They are to do the work he has given them to do with the resources that he's given them to do it with, the resources that he's provided them. Even while he is away, the, knowing that he will return and they will give an account of how they made room for the mission. He gave each of his ten servants, notice in our text, ten minions. That is equal, each uh, ten minions is equal to about a hundred days salary. So for us it would be 30, uh, 30% of our salary. I looked up, said the, in the U.S., the average U.S. salary was $50,000. So in light of that, that's about $15,000 he gave them. And he said, do my business. Do the work that I give you while I am away. So that's sort of the setup for our story. But quickly, our text transitions to the return of this king. Let's read starting in verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first servant came before him saying, Lord, your minya has made 10 millions more. And he said to them, well done, good and faithful servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your minion has made five minions. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then came another, saying, Lord, here is your minion, which I laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, the nobleman said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the minion for him and give it to the one who has ten minions. And they said to him, Lord, he already has ten minions. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Well, there's a lot there. Can you say amen to that? They only give me 35 minutes to preach, so it's their fault if I don't explain it well, whoever they are. So the, the parable quickly transitions to the return of the king in his accountability sessions with, his, with the servants and the citizens. Dr. Daryl Bach, our Luke expert, put it this way. When Jesus returns, which category each person falls in, remember there are three categories, will be revealed, and there will be no counter-arguments. So we saw here, let's look at the first and second servants. There are rewards for the faithful. That's what we see from our text. The first servant, he tells the nobleman that he took $15,000, and he turned it into $30,000, 100% profit. 
I want you to note with the first and second servant, the humility. Lord, your money. The first servant, he knew he did not own any of it. He knew the nobleman had created the environment to make it grow, had worked hard to have the credibility and influence and power in the community to take his money, the nobleman's money, and make it grow. He says, I simply use what you gave me. I simply use what was yours to double your money. The result, well done, good and faithful servant. You who are faithful in the small things will be given more responsibility. The opposite is also true. You who are unfaithful in the small things, you will be given less responsibility. We see that later in the text with the third servant. You will experience loss. What a person has done, someone said, is often an indication of what they will do. So now he is vice regent, if you would, over 10 cities. And then the second servant, he took the $15,000 and he had a 50% profit. He turned in it turned it into $22,500 from our vantage point. He was given the same amount of money. He didn't, he didn't produce as much, but he was still faithful. And for that, he was made in charge of five cities. We need to get this picture that Jesus, right before his ascension, entrusted his servants to all of his servants he basically said, to do my business while I am away. And each of them, he gave each of them some resources. It wasn't minyas. It wasn't cash. But he gave them each resources, all of them equally. He gave them the gospel message. He gave them the Holy Spirit. He gave them his own words. He gave them his church, his people, their gifts and talents. Every person has gifts and talents. He gave them money, a way to earn a living, but to also use for the mission. For one purpose, to do his business of advancing the kingdom of God. To do his business of seeking and saving that which was lost. And to ultimately bring glory to him. To know him in such a way that he would, they would make him known. These two servants represent believers who the gospel of grace has so gripped their lives that they want to show their love, their respect, and their honor for the master. They have worked hard on behalf of the king, and they have been rewarded for it. Do you see that in the text? Here's what this speaks specifically to, that a lot of churches don't teach at all about or not enough about. It speaks specifically to what the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ or the judgment for believers or the Bema seat of Christ. See, God has made our human hearts to be motivated by reward. Is that true? Yeah, we do some crazy stuff to win stuff or get rewarded or earn jobs. He's made our hearts in that way. So he has created this judgment seat of Christ. It is only for Christians. 
It's not a judgment for sin. It's not a judgment to, to see who gets into heaven because everyone who's placed their trust in Christ, heaven has been decided. Paul speaks of this judgment in 2 Corinthians 5.10. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, there you go, speaking to believers, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what we have done, whether good or bad. This is not to punish believers. This is to reward believers for their faithful service. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10 puts it this way. I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Listen to how Paul describes this, this judgment seat of Christ right before he dies. He says in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I fought the good fight. Wasn't a perfect fight. But I fought the good fight. I was faithful. I finished the race. It's a marathon. I kept the faith. Now, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This is a long obedience in the same direction to over time in the sanctification growing process to make Christ supreme in all of life. That's our job as believers. So right now for each of us, before the king returns, the text is teaching us that the king has provided us a time to see if we will be faithful, to see how each of us uses our time, our talent, our truth, which is the gospel, and our treasure for the kingdom of God. So, so we pause this morning, and this is a great chance for us to just continue to evaluate. Am I making room for the mission of God? Look, this is an encouraging passage if you are. But if you're not, this is a warning. This is a shot across the bow that says, wake up. This is going to happen. And now we have the third servant. The third servant, there's regret for the unfaithful. Verse 20. If the three servants... This is how I'd put this. If these three servants, the first servant, the second servant, and the third servant were all together at this point, as I describe or someone describes, or if we heard Jesus tell the parable uh, who the third servant was, it would be when the Sesame Street song began to, to sing. What does it say? One of these things are not like the other. <laughs> this is it. He takes the menu, we see, he hides it in a hanky. In the Middle East, if you do a little research, you'll find that the, the, what Middle Eastern people did was when they wanted to guard something, they buried it in the ground. This guy wrapped it in a napkin, in a piece of cloth. So he's careless, at least. He had no desire to honor, please, or exalt the nobleman. We see very clearly he did not do business. And verse 21 tells us why. 
He says he's afraid of the nobleman. Why? Because he's a severe man. Or it could mean a hard man or an exacting man. And, and here's what our text is saying, that this man is a just man. He will do what he says. He will keep his word. He, when he says he will come back and hold us accountable, if we did business or not, you can believe it. He will do it. He tells the truth every time. So the third servant interprets that instead of seeing the, the nobleman as a truth teller and a man of his word and faithful to his words, he twists it and distorts it and he says he's a severe man. See, see the perspective there? It's amazing to me we heard nothing of this view of the nobleman with the first and second servant. Now, we know the nobleman was more than fair and gracious with the first two servants, was he not? He told him what he would do. He came back. He did exactly what he was said, and he blessed them and gave them more. The third servant's perspective of who the nobleman is seems parallel, if you would, with the citizens. They hated him. His seems similar. But remember here, the nobleman represents the Lord Jesus himself. Notice that the nobleman refused to accept the explanation of the third servant. He didn't go, man, I'm sorry. Have I done something to offend you? Did I hurt your feelings? No, he didn't accept that explanation. Because, think about it, if the third servant was really afraid, then he would have done what the nobleman said. He wasn't afraid. Many have said he just didn't care. The bottom line is the citizens did not want the nobleman as king because they thought he would be a bad king. And the same is true of the third servant. Both of them, the citizens and the third servant, had twisted, had a twisted view of the nobleman. The third servant also expressed that he did not like all these people doing the nobleman's work while the nobleman got the credit for it. The third servant wanted the glory. And when it comes to Jesus, we don't get the glory. We don't deserve the glory. This third servant wanted the glory for himself instead of for the nobleman. And here's the bottom line. This twisted view, if you would, this distorted view of who the nobleman was at the end of the day, caused this third servant to ultimately not believe that he was a man of his word. He ultimately did not believe that the nobleman would return and would hold him accountable of how he used the resources that had been graciously given him. This servant made no room for his master's mission. Verse 22, the nobleman called him wicked said, you knew I was an exact man. You knew I would keep my word. You knew I would do exactly what I told you I would do. You knew I was a truth teller and a promise keeper. I gave you gracious gifts so you'd be about my business and you did nothing with it. Then he goes on in verse 23. He says, look, <laughs> I would have given you some credit if you just put it in the bank and drew some interest. But you did nothing. 
Verse 24, the third servant experiences loss, we see. Tangible loss, regret, and sadness. What he had was taken from him. He had less after the accountability session than he had before. Reminds me of Paul's words and sober words in 1 Corinthians 3. If anyone's work is burned, they will suffer loss, but they themselves will be saved, yet as through fire. At the judgment seat of Christ, there will be believers there who have lived a wasted life. They did not use the gracious resources that the king of the universe gave them to be about the mission. They were about their mission. They were about their glory. They hid it in a handkerchief. And these are the words Paul wrote to believers that lived a wasted life. If anyone's work is burned, they will suffer loss, but they themselves will be saved, yet as through fire. So this third servant is saved, but he has been unfaithful. And reality has hit him in the face. And there is tangible regret and loss. So let, let me summarize. First two servants. They were faithful followers of Christ. They lived with a long obedience in the same direction. They didn't live perfectly. They moved forward, though, on their knees sometimes, crawling, bloody, bruised. But their lives counted for eternity. A life well lived. And, and look, you didn't have to make up stuff at their funeral. They knew God had been gracious toward them and they wanted to make much of him in all of life. They wanted to make much of him in their marriage, so they asked for help. They wanted to make much of him in their job, so they worked hard and were faithful. In their relationships, they wanted to make much of him in their children's lives, with their use of their money, their time, their talent. They were generous when their minds and hearts got distorted, not if they got distorted, they went to God's word or went to other believers and they said, I know I am not seeing God correctly. My view of God is distorted and twisted. Help me to see who he really is so I can trust him. Because if you don't know who he really is, according to the scriptures, you'll never trust him. And you'll hide your life in a hanky. That's what's happening here. They knew that they were the biggest problem in their life. They lived the life of, as I said, always repenting, always changing, quicker to point the finger at themselves versus at God or others. And ultimately, they believed with all their hearts that there would be a day of reckoning, that they would either die and stand before the king or the king would return, and they knew that they would have to give an account of the incredible, gracious resources that the king had given them. They believed that with all their hearts. A life well lived. And then summarizing the third servant, we see that he was saved by the skin of his teeth. A sad life, a wasted life. And I'll just say this, the church is and has always been full of these kinds of servants. And this text this morning is to, if that's you, to root you out. It is a warning. If Jesus would hear, 
he would say, I believe you have been warned. In Luke 15, which we've taught through, the, the passage of the prodigal son, it says that this prodigal rebellious son, it uses these incredible words that said, at his lowest point, it says, he came to himself. He came to himself. Meaning he knew it would be better to be home with the father eating pig food than it would be continue wasting his life. And it says he went back home to his father. If you want a prayer for yourself, if you're a third servant, or for other third servants, that's the prayer. That they would come to themselves. That they would be made aware of the incredible grace that God has given them. The incredible amount of resources God has given them. And they would wake up, and they would take all that God has given them and be very intentional to grow spiritually, to see God correctly, to give time, talent, truth, and treasure to the mission of God because eternity, here's what those people know, eternity is a lot longer than our 60, 70, 80 years here. So we live for the longer, not the shorter as a believer. Lord, help them come to themselves. And then lastly, we have the citizens. Retribution for the enemies of God. Verse 27, the Lord deals with his enemies when he returns. He cuts them down, the text says. And he clarifies what we know to be true. Every knee will either bow now or when the king returns. But every knee will bow. One writer put it this way, we may be horrified by this conclusion. I hope we're not. It's not a pretty conclusion, but it, it is the scriptures. We may be horrified by this conclusion, but beneath the grim picture, the coming of the Lord Jesus compels every man and woman to a decision, a decision of life and death. Dr. Daryl Bach again puts it this way. He says, in their rejection of the king, they will receive exactly what they desired, separation from him. This morning, uh, the choices are so clear. There are three people that this parable describes. They're the only three kinds of people in the world. They are faithful servants who live for the kingdom of God. They are unfaithful servants, believers, yes, but who live wasted lives. And we know them. Some may be here. I, I don't know people's hearts. And then there are unbelievers, the citizens who hate God, and they'll get exactly what they want at the end. So this morning, the questions are this, where am I? Where am I? Where do I want to be? And do some self-examination, some work there. What steps do I need to take 
to make sure that I am living on mission? Take a minute and ask those questions. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we come to you this morning and individually and as a body, we acknowledge your great kindness to us. As, as you said in Luke 19.10, you came to seek and to save that which was lost, that was intentionality on your part. You, you sought us when we weren't seeking you. And you saved us, lost and found, blind, but now we see. And in light of that, Lord, you, you gave us incredible resources that we did not have before we knew you. You gave us a purpose to live, a, the gospel message, all the things we listed this morning. Lord, I pray your spirit would help us, our conversations with other believers would help us be more intentional about how to live faithful. What, what, a, what a great word to put on our tombstones. Faithful. Faithful. Like our master who was faithful and true. Lord, I pray you do a sweet work in us to make us faithful. Lord, I do pray for this morning for, for those who may be in the third servant category that you would you would wake them up. Lord, you give them spiritual smelling salts that there is so much more to life than things here and now. We love you. We're grateful for your kindness to us. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.